0: We saw uh, last week these different uh, challenges that the authorities, the Sanhedrin, were bringing to Jesus to try and discredit him or get him on the horns of a dilemma. We looked at the, the challenge of whose authority uh, are you uh, using or are you utilizing and how Jesus has turned the tables on these super smart people as they try and uh, get the best of Jesus. So last week we, we really looked at uh, the way that, that uh, is tragic if we come to Jesus uh, like a debater, try to come to Jesus like we want to match wits with him. Because we will be no match uh, against Jesus, but instead we we need to come to Jesus with with humility and with teachability. Well, this chapter really continues uh, the the challenges, and it does create kind of a a a couple sermons in a row that, I mean, they're uh, they're direct. We, we are dealing with Jesus in confrontation mode. We're dealing with Jesus in conflict. And so there is an aspect of, of these messages that have to reflect that. There is some, some uh, tapping of swords in, uh, in these passages. And I think it is right for us to feel those uh, sword taps in, in uh, the preaching of the message. But what we have today is we are going to have really two more groups of people that are going to come to Jesus that are going to try and trap Jesus in his words for the purpose of getting him arrested or getting him taken away or discredited. And what we have is uh, 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 these two groups of people are really um, fundamentally dishonest. They're fundamentally dishonest in what they are trying to do. And it's their dishonesty that I think is what we have to, to grapple with and the seriousness of coming to Jesus with uh, duplicity, or coming to Jesus with dishonesty, uh, or or coming to Jesus with any sort of pretense or hypocrisy in in our heart. And as I was thinking about what what might be a good illustration of, of the problem in this passage, I think about movies a lot. You know I love movies. But there was a movie that came out about 20 years ago called Memento. Has anybody seen the movie Memento? This is a really fascinating movie. So the the guy in Memento has short-term memory loss. He only can keep track of his memories for about 15 minutes. And so he is constantly forgetting if he does not write down what is most important for him to remember. And he is on the hunt for revenge because his injury was the product of somebody coming into his house, uh, killing his wife, and him trying to protect her. And so he has this injury, and he is out there trying to find the person who killed his wife. And so he is putting together these clues, but he only has 15 minutes to grapple, and then everything starts over. And so the movie is cleverly going from the present back uh, to a, a key event, and, and we are just keep going backwards and seeing how this guy is trying to deal with this short-term memory loss. And what comes as kind of the the shock as we get towards the end of the movie is that because of this person's condition, if he tells himself something not true, then that untruth sets his course and determines uh, everything that comes after that. And so there is a moment in the end of the movie, which is actually early in this person's story, where he lies to himself. And everything from that point forward, he is on a path of destruction. His dishonesty, his self-deception leads him further and further from the truth and creates in him more and more of a vengeful monster that cannot be stopped. And so the movie really is a picture of the danger of self-deception. The danger of telling ourselves a lie or of trying to believe a lie as the truth. And I really think that that is what is is happening in the different characters who are coming to test Jesus, is they are playing with the truth. They are playing with dishonesty, and they are uh, in a path of participating in self-deception. And so the title of our sermon is The Most Dangerous Game, because I want you to recognize that the most dangerous game that we can play in our relationship with Jesus is to come to him with dishonesty, is to come to him without truly wanting his truth. If we come to him with some sort of game uh, to get him to agree with us or to get him to uh, not be who he says he is, and so the most dangerous game that we are going to see being played by these different actors in this story is really the, the game of, of coming to Christ dishonestly. And so we're actually going to look at three different ways that uh, Jesus is approached dishonestly. And I believe that they are still relevant for us today. The, the reason I want us to grasp what are, are these dishonest ways to come to Jesus is so that we can examine ourselves and make sure that as we approach Jesus, we rid ourselves of these, these, these bents towards self-deception or towards uh, pretense or towards falsehood and let Jesus speak to us directly and truthfully. Because we will only know Jesus when we decide to know him as he is, right? So there are three versions of this most dangerous game of coming to Jesus dishonestly in this text. Uh, Let's look at them in turn. The first dangerous game that we see in this passage is coming to Jesus through religious hypocrisy, through religious hypocrisy. And uh, let me turn in my Bible to where I'm supposed to be. So this is where we have in verse 13, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So the, the Pharisees and the Herodians are coming now after uh, the, the last group got embarrassed. They're now coming, and they're like, well, we'll show you how to get Jesus trapped. We'll figure out a way to, to uh, trap him in his words. Now, the, the Pharisees, they are, we're, we're familiar with them. They're the, the very scrupulous, the very... Uh, uh, word following you know uh, very righteous externally righteous following every possible command scrupulous people uh, in the the Bible they are uh, they're the goody two shoes right and the Herodians are kind of a completely different group of people they're they're the people who have made an alliance with the house of Herod who is the, the king uh, of Judea, and so they are the political power. So the Herodians are more compromising, and the Pharisees are more pure in their uh, recognition of uh, what it means to, to live in, in Israel. And so yet they're, they're coming together. Both the Pharisees and the Herodians have decided that there is a common enemy in Jesus. Jesus represents a common threat. And the reason that he represents a common threat is because when he challenges the temple and challenges that it has become a den of robbers, he is calling out both sets of leaders. And so they come to him together to try and put him in a trap. And let's look at verse 14. They came and said to him, Teachers, Teacher, we know that you are true. And do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. That's a wonderful uh, statement said about Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus and they say, we know that you are true. You are true. And we know that you teach rightly the way of God. There is nothing wrong about that statement, right? That is a beautifully true statement. That could go in our catechism, right? It's true. But it's said insincerely, right? These are words that they are saying, not because they believe it, but because these words they feel will set a trap. And here's how they think it's going to set a trap. It's going to manipulate them manipulate Jesus. They are trying to bait him with his character. You are true, and you will always say what is right. You don't care if it's going to cost you. You don't care if it's going to get you in trouble, because you are a man of truth. Therefore, we're going to put you in a hot water situation, and you, by your character, just have to have to go through the hot water, right? And so that is what they are trying to do. They are, they are not saying these True words about him from the heart. They are saying these true words as a a tactic of manipulation. Something that sounds right, but that they do not personally believe. And Jesus, who is uh, always the smartest person in the room, responds in verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy. He said to them, why put me to the test? And so, what, what do we have here? Jesus shows that he knows the heart behind our words. Jesus knows the heart behind our words. If we are insincere in our faith, he will not be fooled. This is, this is so important. If we have gone down the path of self-deception, we may not even know it. And that's the scary thing about the the story of Memento. But Jesus will know whether our words are true. When we uh, look at the uh, book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 16, we are told these words. On that day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The the, the truth of the matter is there will be no secrets in front of Jesus. Jesus will know every single one of us whether we spoke truly, whether we spoke from the heart, whether we believed what we said, whether we meant it, or whether we were being manipulative or duplicitous. This is the reality. When we stand in front of the judgment, it will be was the word believed in your heart? Was the gospel trusted in your heart? Were the words, I believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, from your heart? And Jesus will judge, and there will be some, as we are told elsewhere in Scripture, who say, Lord, Lord, who will not pass the judgment. So these words are spoken, and the trap that the... Herodians and the Pharisees are putting in front of Jesus is uh, a real doozy. It's this question about should a a pious Jew pay taxes to Caesar, a godless empire, right? And so Jesus uh, takes the, the question of should we pay taxes or not, and he says to them, well, show me a denarius. Show me one of these coins, right? And lo and behold, out of the pocket of, of one of these Herodians and Pharisees comes a denarius. And so Jesus takes hold of it and he looks at this coin and he, he sees, uh, and this is actually what the coin looked like. There, we have lots of these coins that have been discovered. He looks at the coin and he, sa- he, he notices there's an inscription on it. And he says, whose inscription is this? It's interesting to know what the inscription was. The inscription is literally Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine augustus and then on the back is the words high priest so the money of the roman empire declared that the caesar was son of god and declared that he was high priest so there's a there's a lot of idolatry right in, in the coinage of the roman empire but where did the coin come from it came from these supposedly righteous uh, conscientious, scrupulous people who want to know what Jesus thinks. Jesus doesn't have the coin on him; They give him the coin, which is an immediate uh, reversal of their position. Just by showing that they carry the coin, they are showing this doesn't really matter to us. We've already made up our mind that we can, we can use this money and interact with this money and carry this money on the temple grounds. And so Jesus, in asking them to show him a coin is exposing their hypocrisy. Their hypocrisy is going from uh, private to public right in front of them just by the fact that they handed him the coin. Right? And so we we need to to recognize from this that, that any hypocrisy will be exposed. If we come to Jesus dishonestly, if we come to Jesus presenting ourselves as something that in our heart we truly are not, the same thing is ahead of us, that our hypocrisy will be exposed. So I think that begs the question, um, how how can we detect any hypocrisy, any self-deception in our own hearts? We certainly don't want to find that out on the judgment day. Right? We would rather be working through it now, rather be repenting of it now. And so I actually think as, as we look at the uh, Pharisees' uh, question, they give us a great definition uh, that gives us a couple criteria for evaluating whether we are struggling with, with hypocrisy or whether we are prone to hypocrisy. Look, look at it again in verse 14. It says, um, you are not, uh, uh, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion." So the first thing is the opinion of others. I think that, that brings up the question, if you, are we true to our heart or are, we, or are we more fashioned according to the opinions of others? And so uh, do we detect hypocrisy within ourselves? Let's ask ourselves this question. Is your heart most concerned with what people think of you or what Jesus thinks of you? How, how much weight does your positions, your beliefs, your fidelity to Jesus get molded and get reshaped to fit the opinions of the world. That's evidence that you're prone to or on the path of hypocrisy. And then then second, they say, uh, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So here's another test the appearances. We are susceptible to hypocrisy when we begin to prioritize the outside appearance of our life over the inside of our faith, right? When what, what matters to us most is what will people think if they see me like this versus what does God think, right? Uh, if he knew that or saw this or 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 I did this. So when we start putting our energy into how we appear more than we put our energy into knowing him and living out what we know we are dangerously flirting with hypocrisy. Does that make sense? Now now see the danger of religious hypocrisy. That these Herodians and these Pharisees, they are absolutely beat. Their question just goes right in front of them. They thought they had a trap, and instead Jesus outmaneuvers them and turns the trap on them. And they see in front of them one who is true and who speaks truly the way of God and who is more wise than their wisdom. And all that they can muster at the end of this moment is they marvel. I'm like, wow, that's pretty good. (laughs) But that's all. They leave with the same amount of belief in him as they started. All that they do is, well, he won that round. That's impressive, right? But there's no belief. Why? Why? Well, if we go back to what Jesus said in, in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, we see exactly why. He spoke to these Pharisees earlier when he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You see, what has begun to happen and what is calcified in this religious hypocrisy is that their words keep going, keep speaking the faith, But because it is not tied directly to their heart, the heart just keeps getting further and further away. And so they have the words and the affectations and the the expressions and the activities of faith and belief. But the heart, which is most important, is further and further away, disconnected from God. And so here is the the great danger of religious hypocrisy. It cleaves the outside from the inside, right? And that is a great danger. As a a pastor, it is one of the scariest things for me because I could go for a long time, just as long as I keep my appearance great to you, and be dead spiritually. There There is always this challenge, in reading the Word and living in front of the Word and dealing with its constant uh, uh, powerful (laughs) chiseling of my flesh and my idolatry and all of my uh, desires that are against it, it is always tempting to say, well, I'll just preach it and I won't actually apply it. Right? And a a lot of pastors go there. It is always a temptation to live higher than you're actually believing. And the danger is that when you start going on that path, the inside becomes cleaved from the outside. And so here here is my examination question in this first point. The Pharisees say to Jesus, you are true and teach the way of God. I want you to ask yourself, is there any place we are like the Pharisees saying these words with our mouths but not trusting them in our hearts? Is there any place where you are saying, I believe Jesus is true and he teaches the way of God, but your heart doesn't? Think about your finances. Think about the fun you want to have. Think about your plans, your future. Think about um, any number of things. The, the, the way you conduct your, your work. Are there areas where you say, yes, Jesus is true, he teaches the way of God, but this part, I don't believe that in. I don't listen to that part in this area of my life. You see, there is a huge danger, and there is a reason why our mission statement says live in and live out in that order. (laughs) You cannot live out what you are not living in. And once you try to live out what you are not living in, you are becoming a hypocrite. And so the danger of hypocrisy is only remedied when we commit ourselves to living in the good news first and making sure that all of how we live is living out that what we are living in, amen? So the second dangerous game, the first dangerous game is religious hypocrisy, but the second dangerous game that we see here is spiritual compartmentalization, big word, uh, but it, compartmentalizing, spiritual compartmentalization. And this really brings up the second aspect of the Pharisees and the Herodians' question. So so the the formal trap that they set uh, is, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar or should we not? And so the reason that they ask this question is because it creates a trap for Jesus. Uh, Taxes are obviously never a a fun subject, but the options that, that seem to be available to Jesus are say that you should pay taxes, and then all of the people who are absolutely angry at being uh, uh, controlled by Rome and want to be shed of of Roman power and authority in their life, every time they pay the tax, they are being forced into, into being subdued. And so if Jesus says, no, it says, pay your taxes, And he is saying to all these people who are looking at him to be the Messiah, to be the one who is going to free them from the shackles of of Rome, suddenly he's not the guy. And so Jesus would immediately lose the support of so much of the crowd because he would be called a a Roman sympathizer, an assimilationist, basically. But then what if Jesus says the, the other option and says, no, we should not pay taxes to Caesar? Well, then immediately, he has just spoken against Rome, right? He has just spoken the words rebellion against Rome. And that immediately places him in the category of treason and and immediate arrest. So Jesus is either going to, in this situation, find himself against Rome or against the people. Either way, it brings him into great condemnation. So the dilemma seems to be uh, presented by these, these, these Herodians and these Pharisees that, that uh, you either have to choose assimilation or, or isolation. You either choose to, to assimilate to the Romans or you choose to be pure and isolate yourself from the Romans, come what may. The issue that they are trying to put in there basically is this. Do we divide ourselves from the world for our faith or divide ourselves from our faith to live in the world? This is the question that that they are basically putting to Jesus. They are saying either you uh, keep the integrity of your faith and divide yourself from the world, or you have to at least put your faith in a compartment and live in the world, right? There's there's a place where you can have your faith, but not in, in the world. You have to have that in a separate place. It has to be compartmentalized. So they are basically presenting in front of him the idea that to live in this world, you must spiritually compartmentalize your faith, right? Because paying taxes to Caesar is clearly not good, but you have to. So clearly your faith cannot cover everything. It needs to be compartmentalized. And so Jesus is going to take up this question of whether spiritual compartmentalization is the only choice. And he looks at the coin that's handed to him, and he says in verse 17, uh, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are, God, that, that are God's. So he's, he looks at this coin with Caesar's face on it, and he says, well, that's Caesar's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And so in, 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 in that answer, he very cleverly, you know, diffuses the trap, right? I mean, just on, on semantics, like, where do you go from there, right? But, but there is something very profound when he says, and give to God what is God's. So, so the coin bears the image of Caesar. So following the, the, the parallel, Give to God what is God's. What's he saying? What image do we bear? We bear the image of God, right? We bear the image of God. And so uh, when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's, he is saying, yes, Caesar has his coins, but remember whose image you bear. You belong to to God. Full stop. You are made in the image of God. And so, in, in this answer, Jesus actually refuses the either or distinction of, of the spiritual compartmentalization. He, he instead uh, shows that all of life must be lived underneath uh, the lordship of God. So, so when we think of, um, uh, of, of, of this idea of Caesar and God, are we, do we think about them as separate realms? Uh, perhaps if you, if you live with this spiritually compartmentalized uh, idea, you have your life uh, and you have your uh, responsibility to God and then you have your responsibility to state. You have, uh, you know, give to God what is God's and then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So, so uh, go to worship, uh, you know, be, be nice, love your neighbors, circle one, responsible to the state, pay your taxes and vote, circle two, right? So, so this is the image of spiritual compartmentalization. And the Pharisees and the Herodians are basically saying, this is uh, what taxes do. You have to either um, uh, be one or the other. If you're going to be both, you have to compartmentalize. But what Jesus actually does is collapse. He, he, he refuses to take this uh, option. And what he instead uh, does... If you look at at, well, no, 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 go back. Go oh, too fast. Go oh, too fast. All right, good. Uh, if you look at what what happens here, spiritual compartmentalization, by definition, shrinks Christ in our life. Right? If we believe that we have to, to compartmentalize our faith so that we can live in this world, then we are, by definition, making our faith only a part. And if our faith is only a part, then we are shrinking the role of Christ in our life. And we are functionally believing that there is parts of our life that we live apart from Christ. This is what the spiritual compartmentalization does. Spiritual compartmentalization is fundamentally a dishonest way of living because it is saying uh, that you are not actually in all places, in all times, God's. You are not in all times an image bearer of God. Sometimes you are, are bearing the image of the state or bearing the image of, some, of your workplace or bearing the image of uh, the, the, the club you're in or bearing the image of the chiefs or whatever it might be. So spiritual compartmentalization is being rejected by Jesus. And the way he is doing that is this way. Next slide. Now, yes. The responsibility of, to God is your life. And responsibility to the state is part of your life. It's inside of your responsibility to God. You see, when Jesus says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's, Caesar is also in the image of God. Right? Caesar also belongs to God. Caesar also serves God. And so there is no uh, second sphere. The, the, the fact that we are bear the image of God means all of life, all that we do, all the uh, business that we conduct is inside of our responsibility to God. So the state functions under God's authority, not independently to it. Even if it is secular, as, as Caesar was, he is still underneath God's authority, and so there's, there's really two lessons that, that Jesus is teaching us about our relationship uh, to the state. First, that our obedience to the state is part of our obedience to God, right? The, the, the authority of the state is underneath the authority of God. And so when the state asks for legal uh, things like taxes, we're, we're responsible for responding with that. But then second, Jesus is also saying that we obey the state underneath our obedience to God, right? Because that circle is underneath, uh, is is inside of of God's domain. And so the state has no authority to command a person to violate the word of God. Both of these things are, are held in this very brilliant answer. What does this mean for us? Uh, It means that we must reject the game of spiritual compartmentalization. That is death to your faith, right? Because that is teaching you that your faith is only relevant sometimes. And there are things in in life where the word of Christ is not the most important thing to know. And that means that your knowing of Christ is not always the most important thing. (laughs) That is death. That is self-deception of the worst kind. You see, to know Christ is to be under his rule always. We cannot know a Christ who is only part of our life. To know Christ is to be under his rule always. Our relationship with Jesus is not a part of our life, it is our whole life. And that again is why we, as a church, are committed to the core value of being kingdom-centered, which we articulate formally this way. Jesus is King. He must increase, but we must decrease. We seek and serve his kingdom above all that it might be on earth as it is in heaven. That is why we are kingdom centered, because the, the the path of spiritual compartmentalization is a dishonest way of relating to God, of having a relationship with Jesus, and it's destructive. So let me ask you this question as we examine ourselves under this second heading. Is there any place in your whole life where Christ is not increasing? Is there any place in your life where Christ is not increasing? What does it mean for Christ to be increasing In your uh, political positions? What does it mean for Christ to be increasing in your responsibility of voting? What does it mean for Christ to be increasing in your responsibilities as a citizen, as your responsibilities as a parent, as your responsibilities as a spouse? What does it mean uh, for your responsibilities as an employee or an employer? Is Christ always increasing? Or are there places where you're like, that's as much as I can give to Christ, because if I gave him more, I would not be in control. That's self-deception. You are in the image of God. The third dangerous game that we then see in this passage is the dangerous game of scriptural rationalization. These are kind of big words, but scriptural rationalization. So we have this second group of people called the Sadducees. And because everybody knows I am going to do it myself, do you know why they're sad? Do you know why the Sadducees are sad? Because they don't believe in the resurrection. They're sad, you see? Uh... Yeah, it's a terrible joke, but I think every pastor is at some point uh, required to make the joke. But, uh, so we have the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a unique group of people. They were politically plugged in. They were uh, very powerful in the temple and in politics. They were very learned. They were very educated. They were very wealthy. They were philosophical. They were the thinkers. They were the ponderers. They were the deep, smartest guys. And they had a particular uh, position where they only believed that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were actual scripture. They believed everything else uh, from Joshua on was not actually scripture. And so their only Bible was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so because they only believed that these books were the Bible, they clearly had much more conservative positions about what the Bible teaches than a lot of others. By conservative, I mean they, they did not have a whole lot of progressive, uh, additional revelation. They, they held their ground as the only real words of God are these words. And so in uh, first century Judaism, the belief in the resurrection had become very strongly held, that, the, that, that God would resurrect his people. And there are several verses in the Bible that come after the Pentateuch that say that pretty explicitly. But those weren't verses that the Sadducees believed. And so they they had this argument that that there was no resurrection. uh, There there was nothing after life. Because as they read the Pentateuch, they didn't see any evidence of it. Okay? And so, because they are so studied, they're actually very smart and very clever. And they recognize that in the Bible, Moses gives this uh, prescription for what's called leverite marriage, leverite marriage. And this is the custom where if somebody, if, if a husband dies before he uh, has a child, if there is a brother, the brother uh, marries the wife so that they can continue the family line for the dead brother, right? So, so the idea is that we will, we will have a baby for the dead brother and the dead brother will get the name of the baby and that's how we will continue the family line. So the, the prescription of levirate marriage, which is what Moses teaches in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, they say is against the belief in the resurrection. And really there's two reasons why they see, see this as, as unable to support the resurrection. First of all, levirate marriage was Moses' provision for afterlife. How are we going to perpetuate your life? How are we going to perpetuate your name? Well, we don't believe in the resurrection. We believe it only comes through having offspring. So we're going to create this system so that you can have offspring. Second, it uh, uh, conflicts with resurrection because, uh, according to Moses, death ends the marriage covenant. That's why the brother can then marry the the woman and uh, have offspring with her. But if there's life after death, then, then remarriage is akin to adultery, right? And so who's... A husband who, whose wife will this woman be uh, who's had these seven different husbands? So they look at this issue, and they say, uh, you either have to deny the resurrection, or you have to deny Moses. So again, they have put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma, because if he denies the resurrection, then that would make him uh, deny some of his own teaching, but also it would set him against uh, the people. And if he denies Moses, then he's denying the the scripture. So here he is again in a dilemma. And I mean, like the Sadducees, they've got it. They have worked this question up. They have chiseled it down. They have made it precisely uh, ready to just kill (laughs) the, the belief in the resurrection. And they save it and they launch it at Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He starts sweating, right? He starts Uh, kneading his hands, he starts, you know, trying to buy time, Uh, he starts looking around the crowd, see if anybody has a lifeline. No, he does nothing. He, (laughs) he says in verse 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He could not punch their throat harder than what he does right here. He says, you most learned people do not know the power of God or the scriptures. The two things that they think they are chief at. And why does he say that? First of all, he says regarding God's power, you are mistaking your ignorance for intelligence. You see, their entire assumption about the resurrection is it's just life continuing on. But what Jesus says is the life that is to come is not just more life, it is qualitatively different life. The resurrection life is like the difference between a caterpillar and a butterfly, right? You don't look at the, the caterpillar and describe uh, the butterfly. The butterfly completely changes the rules of the game. Like a caterpillar would be saying, how are we ever going to fly? You don't have any clue what's next, right? Right? So, so Jesus is saying, you do not understand the power of God. The way things will be in the age to come will be dictated by the almighty, all-creating God, who, is, who will make things new and make things in, in ways different beyond our uh, best imagining. I love uh, the, the words in, in 1 Corinthians 2, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what is in store For those who love him. When we do not accept that we are dealing with God who has no limits, then we cannot understand his power. And that's the problem with the Sadducees, number one. But then, number two, Jesus goes to the scriptures. And he goes right to the book of Exodus, which was, a, was one of the books that they claimed as scriptures. And he says, don't you remember in the, in the uh, story about the bush where God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? And he says, this is proof of the resurrection. Now, how is that proof of the resurrection? Well, fundamentally, God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob to be their God to bless them, to make them uh, prosperous, and he did not fulfill that promise before they died. So did death know the promise that God had to the patriarchs? No, Jesus is saying God keeps his promise, and so death cannot defeat God's promise. So when God makes a promise that takes hundreds of years to fulfill to an individual, he is still treating that individual as a covenant partner, as a living person, a living agent that he is promise-bound to. So the fact that he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a way of saying that he is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. I appreciate what William Lane says as he explains this in his commentary. He says, if the death of the patriarchs is the last word of their history, there has been a breach of the promises of God guaranteed by the covenant, and of which the formula of the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob is the symbol. It is in fidelity to this covenant that God will resurrect the dead. You see, it is the nature of God and his promise that makes the recipients of his promise recipients of everlasting life, because God himself is everlasting, and his promises are everlasting. And so Jesus goes to the, the book of Exodus, goes to the Sadducee scripture, and shows them a proof of the resurrection. Now, the proof that, that Jesus gives of the resurrection is, is hermeneutically fascinating, because Jesus reveals that reading his word involves more than just reading the surface. The truth that, that is communicated through the word of God includes also its underlying assumptions. There's no explicit word of resurrection. But the resurrection is an underlying assumption of a God whose promises cannot fail in front of dying humans. Okay? Okay. And so the underlying assumptions are also part of the truth of the text. And so Jesus, I mean, at the end of this, he says, you are quite wrong. Like, he doesn't even give any any room for their uh, adjustment. They are quite wrong. And in this case, he is is showing that the Sadducees are playing the dangerous game of scriptural rationalization. What, What do we mean by scriptural rationalization? This is the process of conforming scripture to our own understanding, our own bias. The Sadducees had decided that they wanted a scripture that denied the resurrection, uh, denied all these spiritual realities. And so they conform scripture to fit their understanding, to form their bias. Scriptural rationalization is, is, is basically this, reading the word to find our truth, not God's truth. And it's dishonest. Because it takes Scripture not as a voice from God, but as an echo chamber. The only thing that we hear in Scripture when we use it as as a means to rationalize what we want to believe is we only hear ourselves. It becomes becomes the the Polaroid of self-deception in Memento. We get deeper and deeper into our own lost way. Because we allow Scripture not to be God's truth, but to be only echoing our truth. So, when we look at scriptural rationalization, we have to recognize that today, this is a lot easier than it was in the days of the Sadducees. I mean, there are books and blogs and podcasts that are available for any rationalization you may want. Any part of Scripture, any teaching that you do not like, I assure you, you can find somebody who will twist the Scriptures just the way you need them twisted. You will find someone to rationalize the Scriptures just the way you want it rationalized. And so we must be very careful in our day and age where everything can be published, anything can be said and and disseminated to a million and a billion people what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So... I, I uh, remember in my late high school, college days, um, having the question, well, wh- what is sexual immorality? Like, really? What, what's sexual immorality? Is it this? Is it this? Is it this? Why, why was I asking that question? I wanted the narrowest definition of sexual immorality that I could find. I wanted a definition that said, you can have fun doing this and this and this. You can have fun all the way up to this point. Why was I why was I looking for people who could tell me that's that's what sexual immorality is? Only this point. Because my ears itched for the rationalization that scripture would allow me to do X, Y, and Z. Right? And so scriptural rationalization is always a temptation. Because if we can remove the opposition of the word of God, then we have no opposition at all. And when I allowed this this game of what was sexual morality, do you think I got closer to Christ? This is the same story, this happened at the exact same time of the story I shared last week, which was where I was moving towards straight agnosticism and atheism. The two went hand in hand. When we treat the scriptures as a means of our own rationalization, we are not coming closer to Christ. We are becoming more self-deceived. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us what the word is like. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So here's my... Examination question for you, as we think about whether we are playing the dangerous game of scriptural rationalization. Are you reading the word so that it tingles your ears or pierces your heart? Are you reading the word so that it tingles your ears, so that it says what you want to hear, or that it pierces your heart, so that it calls you to repentance? So as we conclude, the dangerous game of religious hypocrisy, spiritual compartmentalization, and scriptural rationalization, these are all paths that lead us away from Christ, that lead us in the path of self-deception. what is the answer? What is the remedy? The remedy is that we must take what the Pharisees said in pretense and preach it to ourselves. You are true, and you teach the way of God. Examine yourself. What do you need to know about Jesus to say from your heart, you are true and you teach the way of God? Ask Christ to be your vision and to lead you in his truth, to separate you from all dishonesty and self-deception that you might know him and the way of God, truly and forever. Amen?